The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Explores. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Just a heads up, if you haven't yet listened to Cleopatra Parts 1 and 2, you'll want to stop right here and go and do that. Otherwise, you're missing out on a whole lot of juicy details you need to know to appreciate the rest of her story. It's cool. I'll wait. When we last left Cleopatra, she was creeping out the back door of a chaotic Rome in the wake of Julius Caesar's death. As she sails the waves back to Alexandria, she broods over what might happen next. She's just lost her Roman lover, ally, and protector in a world where Rome is increasingly calling most of the shots. And then there is Caesarion, her son with Julius. In him, she has both a valuable advantage and a potential danger. In some ways, she's just as vulnerable as she was as a young exile. But Cleopatra is older now, a seasoned leader, and she isn't one to sit back and let the gods take the wheel. She's managed to harness Rome's powers in her favor and ensure her family's continued legacy successfully before. And she will do it again, if she can just figure out how best to play the game. Grab your best coal eyeliner, a whole lot of incense, and perhaps a few poisonous snakes. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My pirate queens, Amy C., Barbara, Becky, Brittany, Chloe, Emily H., Aaron, Jackie, Jamie, Justine, Kara, Casey, Kayla, Kelsey, Lauren, Lauren O., Louise, Lydia, Marie Claire, Mira, Mikkel, Morgan, Samantha, Sean, Stephanie, and Wendy. And my lady presidents, Alexis, Alicia, Amanda H., Amanda P., Amy, Brendan, Ashley, Audrey, Belinda, Bethany, Caroline, Cassie, Catherine B., Keep Smiling, Krista, Claire, Courtney, Courtney H., Cracky, Crystal, Dana, Debbie, Diana, Elizabeth M., Elizabeth G., Ellie, Elspeth, Emily C., Eve, Ginger, Holly, Iris, Janae, Jeanette, Julia, Caitlin, Karen R., Kat G., Kat U., Kelly, Kelly F., Kim, Larissa, Lauren K., Louisa, Lydia, Maggie, Manda, Margot, Mary, Meg, Melissa, Nancy, Nicole M., Inkiru, Pamela, Paul, Sasha, Sarah S., another equally fabulous Sarah S., Townsend, Veronica, and Wendy N., and the Imperators and Augustas who give me more each month than I ask for. Jackie C., Dylan, Jessica S., Karen C., Avery, and Lee. Becoming a patron really helps keep the show going and growing, and it gives you exclusive access to bonus episodes, Q&As, interviews, sneak peeks, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. And now, back to Cleopatra. When Cleopatra arrives back in Alexandria, she must be relieved to be back in her comfort zone. This is her city, her empire, and she knows her place within it. But she also has some fires to put out. 
Over at the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, Cleo's sister Arsinoe is stirring up some trouble, gathering up money and followers. They insist that she's the real queen of Egypt. Also around this time, a pretender makes himself known in the front row, proclaiming that he's Ptolemy XIII returned. Sup, girl? You didn't really think I drowned in the Nile, did you? To make matters worse, her 15-year-old brother-husband, Ptolemy XIV, is also becoming a nuisance. She's facing potential threats on a couple of fronts here, and she hasn't got no time for petty Ptolemy infighting. So she nips the closest of these problems in the bud and has her youngest brother killed, probably by way of poison. Ooh, Cleo, that is cold. But this is just everyday business for the Ptolemies. Unsavory as it is, it's nothing different than her forebears would have done. With P-14 crossed off the future king list, she can do something she's probably been dreaming about since she birthed him. Install Caesarian as the new pharaoh. This achieves a couple of wonderful aims, all in the one decision. First, it allows her to rule for him as co-regent without anyone trying to stop her. Because we're fine with women leaders in Egypt, just so long as they have a man around. This particular man is only three years old and her son, so he poses no threat to his mother's way of doing business. She can feel that much more secure on her throne. And he's a bit of a golden goose, this boy. The heir of Egypt and a son of Rome. It's right there in his official king name. King Ptolemy, who is as well Caesar, father-loving, mother-loving god. Subtle, Cleo. In propping up her son, she more firmly aligns herself with Isis in the Egyptian imagination. That powerful, much-beloved goddess who is also a mother who is willing to do anything for her family. She becomes even more of a godly creature to be revered and respected. And in wrapping her son up in Caesar's legacy, she's reminding those who might try and challenge her, Rome included, that she's got something they don't, and she's going to make sure that everybody knows it. For starters, she builds temples all across Egypt. Like so many lady pharaohs before her, she knows the potent power of ever-present PR. She carves herself and young Caesarian into stone at places like the Temple of Dendera. There they stand in crowns, offering incense to Isis, her son Horus, and her husband Osiris. That's some powerful iconography right there. And she's only getting warmed up. By this time, she may also have started building the Caesarium in Alexandria, a massive structure dedicated to her baby daddy right there in the harbor. She builds a giant temple to Isis as well. She also spends a lot of time nurturing an intellectual renaissance in her city. Like the Ptolemies of old, she starts rebuilding her hometown as a place that learned people want to hang out and make merry. She starts a school of philosophy and fans the flames of a resurgence of scholarly works in areas like grammar and history. Medicine, too, sees a big bump. Under her reign, doctors produce new works on treating many maladies and new surgical techniques as well. She is credited with furthering studies in science, magic, and medicine. The Talmud says that she had a great scientific curiosity. Roman men might want to see her as Caesar's temptress, but at home, she is a mighty scholar. Years later, she'll be given credit for contributing new works on things like hairdressing and cosmetics, too. And though both of these claims come long after her death and are maybe pretty dubious, it's said she invents a great trick for keeping the skin young, bathing in acid's milk, obviously, and a handy cure for baldness. Its key ingredients are burnt mice, burnt horse's teeth, and bear grease. User discretion advised. She'll also get a rep in the Talmud for supposedly trying out experiments on her female prisoners to figure out when a fetus becomes an embryo, which sounds fairly unsavory, and we can hope that isn't really happening, especially since she becomes a patron of the Temple of Hathor dedicated to women's health. So, stay in power, check. Produce an heir, check. But things aren't all intellectual salons and fine perfume up in here. In 43 BCE, the Nile doesn't flood, and Cleo once again has to deal with big-time plague and famine. She has to grant tax exemptions, devalue her currency, give out free grain. Still, when left alone to do her kingly business, Cleopatra proves herself a deft leader, well capable of running the show on her own. And yet, like a truly terrible ex-boyfriend, Rome just won't stop calling. They're currently back at war, and Cleopatra's soon going to be forced to pick sides. <music> P-14 
Here's what's up with Team Rome right now. The studly Mark Antony, he's back, is now one of the top dogs in Rome. But so is Julius's 18-year-old adopted son, Octavian. They have temporarily joined forces to try and chase down Caesar's killers, including Servilius' son, Brutus. This results in many battles, and everyone wants Egypt's money and ships to give them an edge in the conflict. Cleo tries to stay well clear of it, but she finds she can't ignore them. Not when one of Julius's murderers, a guy named Cassius, tries to bully her into giving him some ships. She sends him her apologies. Her dance card is currently full. Then sends her ships to a guy named Dolabella. Remember him from our episode on Fulvia? But then one of her commanders goes behind her back to help out Cassius, who is, of course, an enemy to Mark Antony and Octavian. Later, she tries to meet those two with the head of her very own fleet, but it's turned back by foul weather and then illness. In the end, she just makes several men mad and makes friends with none of them. Suffice it to say, it's all a bit of a mess. But eventually, Mark Antony and Octavian defeat the conspirators at the Battle of Philippi and become Rome's number one heroes. And then, after some very tense months of hating each other, they decide to join forces with that guy Lepidus and form the Second Triumvirate. Rome's territory is now so big that one man can't really manage it alone, so the three men split it up into chunks between them. Octavian will manage Italy in the west, Lepidus gets some of Africa, and Mark Antony, now truly at the top of his game, is given the whole of the east. He and Cleopatra are now on a collision course. And so this conquering hero decides to leave his bomb wife Fulvia behind and go on a grand tour of his new territories. It's basically the ancient equivalent of a lavish, long-term party bus. <laughs> Yo, let's get it! This guy, who we'll remember is intense, excitable, and loves a good party, stumbles into many different eastern ports to great fanfare. Yeah, 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 no, no, we need a three-to-one ratio. Three women, one... Actually, three women, zero men would be best. He starts in Greece, where he hails himself as the new Dionysus, and everyone's happy to play along. Excuse me, I seen you over here lying. You gotta chug that right now. When he sashays into the city of Ephesus, he's met by women dressed up as bacchanalian revelers, the whole town wrapped in ivy. All the client kings and other eastern royals are very much invested in trying to keep him happy. He is showered in attention, swimming in flowers with virgins thrown down at his feet. Some royals even offer up their own wives for his pleasure. I just go to my bedroom and just take off your clothes. He settles in at Tarsus, a city in modern-day Turkey, and his mind gets to wandering to that luscious Egyptian queen. He sends over a guy named Delius to call her to account for not supporting him and Octavian, and maybe woo her a little if necessary. Delius essentially tells her, Listen, I know you've been burned before, but Mark's a great guy. You'll love him. But of course, it's Cleo who does all the wooing. She charms the pants off of Delius, who quickly realizes he's dealing with a powerful woman who isn't going to bend the knee. And he knows his boss Mark is gonna be hella into it. And yet she still doesn't go to Tarsus. She delays for so long that Mark starts sending her texts through emissaries. Yeah, 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 what up, girl? You awake? I mean, people say I look like Hercules. I, I mean, that's what I heard. More, I think Hercules looks like me, but, you know, just saying. Yo, Cleo, uh, Mark again? Seeing if you got my texts, uh, def not, because otherwise you'd already be here. Yo, Cleo, uh, Mark again, uh, I see that you read the text, uh, I got that there, um, you wanna, you leave me hanging? Cleo chooses not to respond, or if she does, it's with something like, Yeah, hey, that's cool and all, but I'm super busy running a country. I just don't know when I'll have the time. She was always planning to go and see him, of course. She can't afford not to. This isn't the time to spit in Rome's face. But she also knows the powerful allure of delayed gratification. Yo, Cleo, you've been dot-dot-dotting me a couple of times. What's going on? I know you read my text. Where you at? And she isn't some 21-year-old exile sneaking back into her country by night. Not this time. There will be no slinking around in burlap sacks. No, this 28-year-old assured lady boss of a country is going to show up with more swagger than Beyonce and more costume changes than a Lady Gaga concert. 
She must know Mark, at least by reputation. They'll have met, either in Egypt or in Rome, over the years, and his reputation is bound to precede him. This is a guy who has been scooping up land and property along his way and handing it out to whoever flatters him the most profoundly. He's a guy who loves to laugh at other people and himself, who is both charming and reckless, mercurial and passionate. He loves drinking, good times, and a heaping helping of drama. And, of course, he loves him some fancy women. He's already slept with a few king's wives on his epic eastern party bus adventure. To win and then hold his attention, Cleo knows she'll need to do much better. As Plutarch tells us, she knows it's time to be putting her greatest confidence in herself and in the charms and sorceries of her own person. She sails toward Mark Antony on the ancient world's most opulent party barge, making one of the grandest entrances that history has ever seen. Shakespeare will describe this with his typical flair centuries later, but he won't have to stretch his creative faculties to come up with some scene setting. Plutarch does that for him. He describes a boat with a gilded stern, silver oars, and purple sails. Music plays while colored smoke trails behind them. She herself reclined beneath a gold-spangled canopy, dressed as Venus in a painting, he tells us, while beautiful young boys like painted cupids stood at her side and fanned her. Her fairest maids were likewise dressed as sea nymphs and graces, some steering at the rudder, some working at the ropes. Wondrous odors from countless incense offerings diffused themselves among the riverbanks. Cleo means to make a powerful impression, and she does it. You can almost hear Mark Antony's jaw dropping. But I wonder behind this confident mask and careful staging if Cleopatra is a little anxious. The deal she strikes with this particular Roman general may have the power to change her country's future and her own. And she knows that she didn't rush in with troops to help Mark when he and Octavian needed her. Is he going to hold that against her now? This is a very high-stakes game, but Cleo's come to play. She sends Mark a message saying that Venus has arrived ready to party with Bacchus for the greater good of Asia. He responds by inviting her over for dinner. But she writes back saying she'd really rather have him over to her place. And he goes because, damn, this whole playing hard to get because I'm a goddamn queen thing is working for him. He's not single, but he's most definitely ready to mingle. Over a series of several nights, Cleo proceeds to do what she does best and pull out all the extravagant stops. She decorates dozens of banquet rooms with luxe couches draped with rich fabrics and decks out the trees with twinkling lights. Every table is laden with gold cutlery. One night, she fills the dining room knee-deep in roses. At the end of each meal, she invites her Roman guests to take things home with them. Furniture, horses, slaves, whatever. But even more impressive than this display of Egypt's many riches is the Lady Pharaoh herself. Ever the quick-witted chameleon, she swiftly reads Antony's personality and moods and caters to them beautifully. When he makes crude jokes, she makes some of her own. Instead of looking down her nose at him, she meets him on his level. And I think that's one of the most impressive feats of all. By the time she sails home just weeks later, their traveling romance has Mark completely smitten. Once again, Cleo's got one of Rome's most powerful men on the hook. Are they in love or lust, or is this just politics? There's no doubt that this alliance is important and beneficial for them both. Mark Antony needs money and ships, both to deal with internal Roman problems and pursue his own ambitions. Cleopatra needs Rome's support to keep her throne. Of course, ancient Roman writers would love you to think she uses dark, evil, sexy magic to addle this man's senses. The moment he saw her, Appian tells us, Antony lost his head to her like a young man, although he was 40 years old. Another claims he's under the influence of drugs when he falls so hard for her. Plutarch lays all of Mark's mistakes to come at Cleopatra's feet. He had faults before, Plutarch says, but she's really the one who ruins him saying that now as a crowning evil his love for cleopatra supervened roused and drove to frenzy many of the passions that were still hidden and quiescent in him and dissipated and destroyed whatever good and saving qualities still offered resistance and he was taken captive in this manner but i mean come on now 
He might be a good-looking Marlon Brando-type bruiser with great curls and a hot temper who has probably slept with more women than you could fit inside an Egyptian pleasure barge. But Mark Antony is still an accomplished Roman general. Does Cleopatra completely have him in thrall? Yes, probably. But not just with the charms of her body and not with any sexy sorcery. She is smart and an incredibly interesting woman to hang out with. She's absolutely one of a kind. Soon, Mark Antony is advertising his feelings by offing Cleo's one remaining sibling. He orders someone to drag Arsinoe out of that temple in Ephesus and murder her right there on the steps. R.I.P., you almost queen. To give Cleo some credit, the priests there were proclaiming Arsinoe the rightful ruler of Egypt, and she knows that the threat will never die unless her sister is done away with. And when the priests come before Mark and Cleo to beg for their leader's life, she does ask Mark to spare him. That Ptolemy pretender doesn't get the same courtesy. Mark has him executed, as well as that rogue naval commander on Cyprus. You know, the one who supported Cassius behind Cleopatra's back during all that Roman squabbling. But of course, every crazy thing Mark does from this point on is obviously Cleo's evil influence. Straight away, the attention that Anthony had until now devoted to every matter was completely blunted, says the disapproving Appian. And whatever Cleopatra commanded was done without consideration of what was right in the eyes of man or God. Whatever, Appian. Don't blame Cleo for Mark Antony's itchy trigger finger. When winter comes that year, as he sends his army to various winter quarters, he can't stop thinking about Cleopatra. So even though things at home in Rome are a little bit touchy, and even though the Parthians are causing trouble he should probably deal with, Antony gets on a ship and heads to Alexandria. Oh yeah, girl, let's go, let's go! Just like Julius before him, Antony falls in love with her city. But unlike his deceased mentor, he sails in without a grand Roman retinue, and the locals like him all the better for it. Before long, he's fully leaning into the Alexandrian lifestyle, shedding his Roman clothes for the comfort of Greek dress, speaking Greek instead of Latin. He uses the opportunity to cut loose like a college boy on spring break, and Cleo is more than able to keep this party boy entertained. It's said they sometimes sneak out of the palace disguised as a maid and a slave, eavesdropping at people's windows and occasionally getting screamed at, which Mark thinks is absolutely hilarious. I can definitely see him leaving a flaming bag of dog poop on someone's doorstep and laughing from behind a loaded cart. The Alexandrians know it's Mark playing pranks, and they indulge him. And though she's got to be busy, you know, running a country, Cleo indulges him too. They hunt, they drink, they gamble, and above all, they feast. They even form a little club called the Inimitable Livers, and their parties are the stuff of legend. Plutarch heard a story, passed down from a guy named Philotas who was there in the kitchens during one of them. He's blown away by how much food they're making. There must be a whole lot of guests. No, says the kitchen hand. There will only be about 12 of them, but we never know when dinner will start, and it has to be fresh and come out perfect. So we have to make several dinners, just in case. Turns out that Mark Antony is an expensive house guest to have. Is anyone really surprised? Things at these dinners can get pretty wild. Years from now, for example, an advisor of Antony's named Lucius Munatius Plancus comes to one such dinner dressed as the sea god Glaucus, naked, painted blue, and with a fake fish's tail, which he flashes around for everyone's general amusement. Plutarch also tells us that the two make a bet about who can prepare the most expensive banquet. Cleo wins by drinking a giant pearl worth 10 million sesterces, which I've seen valued at about 60,000 pounds of gold. The servants placed in front of her only a single vessel containing vinegar, says Pliny the Elder. She took one earring off and dropped the pearl in the vinegar, and when it was wasted away, swallowed it. Modern scientists have tested this out, and a pearl will dissolve in vinegar if you leave it for long enough. True or not, this story illustrates the kind of lavish nights these two are having. 
The ever-judgy Appian says that in this way, Mark was often disarmed by Cleopatra, subdued by her spells, and persuaded to drop from his hands great undertakings and necessary campaigns, only to roam about and play with her on the seashores. But even as they play, you have to wonder if Cleopatra is finding all of this a little stressful. She wants to keep Mark engaged and, if possible, keep him close, but can she ever truly be herself with him? Can she let her guard down? How is she supposed to juggle the responsibilities of being a ruler, a mother, and a pleasant playmate, and still occasionally get a few hours of sleep? She has the ancient equivalent of a CEO mom's problems, and the fate of her country is sitting squarely on her shoulders. That's got to be a heavy weight. Here's another story that highlights her ability to meet Mark measure for measure. They go fishing one day, and Mark is frustrated by how few of them he's catching, so he hires a guy to covertly dive into the water and put a fish onto his dangling hook every few minutes. Classic Mark. Cleo, not at all fooled, sings his praises like she hasn't even noticed. But the next day, she gets her own servant to dive in and put a salted black sea herring on his hook instead. Leave the fishing rod to us, General. One historian has her saying, probably with a very sly smile. Your prey are cities, kingdoms, and continents. While Mark is having a grand old time in Alexandria, his Roman responsibilities don't just go away. News comes that the Parthians are causing trouble, as per usual, by invading Syria. And then he gets an awkward call from home. Um, sir? Uh, I know you said not to bother you while you're living it up. But your brother and your wife, Fulvia, just started a war with Octavian in your absence, and, um, they lost? So Mark sails off to deal with his issues, and Cleo is left alone, having deftly cemented her powerful connection to the Roman Empire, or at least to one of its most powerful generals. And even though he goes and yells at Fulvia, where she's taken refuge in Greece, and even though she dies of illness and Mark doesn't stick around to console her, none of that is his fault. According to Dio, his neglect of Fulvia was all because of his passion for Cleopatra and her wantonness. Okay. So once again, Antony finds himself at awkward odds with Octavian. They come to an accord at the Treaty of Brundisium in October of 40 BCE, which states that Mark Antony will deal with the Parthians and Octavian will deal with Sextus Pompey, that other Pompey's son, who is also causing trouble. Mark also does what any Roman hotshot would do, now that he's officially single, and agrees to marry Octavian's sister. Her name is Octavia. Of course it is. And she is sweet, serious, and docile. Everything that Cleopatra is not. We don't know how Cleo feels about any of this, but the alliance has to make her uneasy. There's also the little fact that she's back in Alexandria giving birth to Mark Antony's progeny, a set of twins. She names them Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene, the sun and the moon. Now she's tied to Rome through three children. She's creating more potent ties between the East and West than anyone else could dream of doing. And that comes with perks and threats. From 40 to 37 BCE, Cleopatra has to watch her lover's actions from a distance. But she isn't worried. She knows Mark will be back. But for a while, he does stay away, having children with Octavia. All girls so lame. And just barely getting along with his brother-in-law. I don't want to get embroiled in Roman man business, but it's hard to appreciate Cleo's story without it. Suffice it to say, there are spats, riots, battles, power grabs. Eventually, in 37 BCE, Octavian and Mark have to meet once again to hash out their many issues, and Octavia gives an impassioned speech about how she really, really wants them all to get along. Fences mended, mostly. He gets ready to sail away and finally defeat those pesky Parthians. Mark's friends have every reason to hope he's over that whole Cleopatra business. Octavia is definitely Rome's number one sweetheart, and everyone wants Mark to stick it out. But as he sends his wife and young kids back to Rome, he also sends a message to Alexandria asking Cleo to meet him in Antioch. Three and a half years after they last saw each other, this thing is officially back on. (music) 
It must be a pretty exciting reunion, because not long after they arrive, coins start circulating sporting both of their faces, a pretty flagrant PDA. And Mark officially one-ups Caesar by acknowledging their children together. It doesn't hurt that one of them is a son, something Octavia hasn't been able to produce. Then he showers his leading lady with gifts in the form of land. He gives Cyprus back, for starters, something Caesar never did, plus pieces of Sicilia and Crete. Sometimes he even deposes sovereigns to give these key places to Cleo. Now she rules nearly all of the eastern Mediterranean. This is a new era for Egypt, and Cleopatra is the pharaoh of it all. She rebrands herself with a new title, Queen Cleopatra, the goddess, the younger, father-loving, and fatherland-loving. And she has every reason to feel on top of her game. By age 36, she's given birth to another son, whom she calls Ptolemy Philadelphus. She's got the devotion of one of the most powerful men in Rome. It seems like no one can touch her. All she needs now is for Antony to do what he's long promised and defeat Parthia so she can truly be the Empress of the East. He heads off on campaign, and she takes a bit of a victory march through some of her territories. She's swishing through the desert and feeling pretty smug. But meanwhile, Mark Antony is having a tough time in Parthia. He gets lost in the desert, betrayed by local guides he thought he could trust, and ends up limping away with troops dying of starvation and dysentery. He loses a whopping third of his army, not in battle, but in running away from battle. Which, of course, later writers will blame Cleo for. So eager was he to spend the winter with her that he began the war before the proper time, says Plutarch, and managed everything confusedly. He was not the master of his own faculties, but as if he were under the influence of certain drugs or magic rites, was ever looking eagerly towards her. Drugs, sorcery, and an evil uterus, the source of all the world's problems, to be sure. When Cleo arrives in the town where he's staying to help him out with some reinforcements, she finds a wreck of the passionate man she knew. Depressed, demoralized, defeated. We don't know how she reacts to seeing him like this, but it can make her feel confident and relaxed. She and Egypt are just as invested in his successes at this point as he is. Meanwhile, Mark Antony's wife Octavia has sent word that she's coming to his aid with 2,000 well-equipped guardsmen. Octavia is something of the Jackie Kennedy of Rome, much loved and admired for her beauty and infinite virtues. Cleopatra, of course, is not. She makes it to Greece, but Mark Antony holds her off via messenger. He doesn't want to lose Cleopatra's aid for the sake of what Octavia is offering. Octavia sends an envoy right back to remind him of her many charms, urging him to accept her help. Cleopatra knows a dangerous rival when she sees one, so she tries a new approach, flagrant emotion. Apparently she cries, refusing to eat, dying of her love and passion for him. Her entourage says that she will give him everything if he will stay with her, and she will die if he doesn't. Even Mark's friends are enthralled by the intensity of her emotions, giving Mark grief for being such a heartless boyfriend. This seems somewhat out of character. Is she a woman desperate not to lose the man she loves and the father of so many of her children? It's entirely possible. What she definitely is is a woman who knows that if she loses Mark to his Roman wife, her throne might just be lost with it. Without his protection, Octavian is going to be gunning for her. Her children's legacy might end in blood. For this pharaoh of Egypt, the stakes really couldn't be any higher. She will do anything she has to to keep him by her side. Real or staged, her show of emotion works on Antony. He was not governed by the reasoning of a commander, or of a man, or indeed by his own reasoning at all, wrote Plutarch. Rather, as some say in jest, that the soul of a lover lives in someone else's body, it was dragged around by a woman, as if he had become part of her and was carried with her. He heads back to Alexandria for the winter and tells Octavia not to bother coming. Back in Rome, her brother is definitely not impressed. In the spring, Mark Antony gets it together and invades Armenia, whose king betrayed him in his quest for Parthia. He just really needs a win, you know? He defeats their army, marching the captured royal family back into Alexandria in chains. He then holds a triumph celebration, the first ever held outside of Rome. Mark sweeps down the canopic way on his chariot to much fanfare. And then he presents his treasures and captives, taken presumably for Rome, to the Queen of Egypt. Get it, Cleo? 
He, Cleopatra, dressed up in full Isis gear, and their children all occupy a set of golden thrones. Then Mark starts handing out titles and lands like it's Halloween candy. Yo, kid one gets some land, kid two gets some land, kid three gets some land, Mabu gets some land, everybody gets some land, I do what I want, bitches. In what will later become known as the Donations of Alexandria, he gives Armenia and Medea to his son Alexander Helios, Cyrenaica and Libya to Cleopatra Selene, Syria and Sicilia to his son Philadelphus. He also calls Cleo the Queen of Kings, and pronounces Caesarian as both the King of Egypt and Julius Caesar's true heir, flipping the bird straight in Octavian's direction. If there is anything that's going to make Rome lose its mind, it is this. Cleo must know she and Mark are poking the bear in this moment. But for all the glory this means for her family in Egypt, it's a gamble she seems willing to take. Is she drunk on power, or is this a calculated move? In everything she does, she's trying to protect her country from being absorbed and overrun by the Roman machine. And since Mark Antony is Rome, maybe she doesn't think she has anything to fear in making hay while the sun shines. Octavian is far away, young and frail, and everyone knows he doesn't have the full support of the Roman people. Surely this is a game she's going to win. And for a while, that seems true enough. Her wealth and prestige continue to grow, and she uses her money to build a massive navy. She's having fun feasts with Antony and hiring expert tutors to educate her children. She's participating in religious rituals and festivals, like always, and even hearing lawsuits with Antony. Mark's running Alexandria's gymnasium, getting all buff, while she manages the affairs of her country. The crying, very hungry woman from Antioch is definitely a thing of the past. But amidst all that, the relationship between Mark Antony and Octavian is deteriorating quickly. At first, it's all about misappropriation of land. Mark didn't get his share of Octavian's Italian distributions. Octavian wants his share of Armenia's spoils. As the clock ticks down the days until the contract they made to rule Rome together comes to an end in December of 33, it starts turning ugly. Octavian's telling everybody who will listen that Mark's acting so badly that he's gonna have to give up his claim of the East. And of course, Mark is completely not down. Yo, yo, excuse me, Cleo, hold my beer. Quiet barbs turn into a full-blown battle of insults hurled via quill and scroll. Uh, Octavian's a coward who hides during battle. Mark's a raging drunk who vomits during important meetings. Well, Octavian gave Caesar sexual favors! And he likes to flowering virgins. Well, Mark is past his prime. And also, he's effeminate. Oh, yeah? Octavian, um, I couldn't find you during that last battle. You hiding under a table? And also, he spends his nights with a foreign sorceress instead of his actual Roman wife. You, Octavian, you fell off that horse, though. Octavian leans hard on that last one, because if there's something that makes Romans deeply uncomfortable, it's a Roman leader acting like a king. Octavian wants Egypt, its riches and spoils, for his own purposes, and he wants Mark Antony out of his way. That means he needs a reason to pick a fight with them. So he gets to work on a smear campaign meant to prove two things. One, that Mark Antony is no longer making his own decisions, but being manipulated by a foreign power. Two, that this foreign, eastern queen won't stop until she conquers Rome itself. Mark and Cleopatra give him plenty of material to work with. They head over to Ephesus to organize a military base and start recruiting other Eastern leaders to their cause. Ever the sugar mama, Cleo provides by far the most treasure. 200 warships fully manned, 20,000 talents, full supplies for the soldiers, to keep them fed and clothed for however long the coming conflict might last. But luckily, the Senate isn't ready to give up on Mark, not quite yet. About a third of them are with Mark Antony, and as the triumvirate deal expires, they sail over to Ephesus to let him know that allying with Cleopatra is seriously jeopardizing his cause on the home front. So Mark tries to send her back home, but guess what? Cleo refuses to go. She argues that while she might not be a commander, her soldiers won't fight without her. They are loyal to their queen above all else. They argue the point, but she refuses to be sidelined. When this fight is as much hers as Antony's, she's not one to run from a battle, and she is here to stay. 
In the summer of 32, they sail over to Athens, where Mark gives Cleo quite a thoughtful gift, the Library of Pergamum, one of the largest of the day. This adds fuel to Octavian's fire about Mark's dangerous affection for this foreign queen, as do their frequent public displays of infatuation. Supposedly, as Mark sits in discussion with kings, he frequently receives sultry love notes from Cleo, written on onyx and crystal. Well, that's extra. And stops what he's doing to read them. There are stories of him following along after her litter like a puppy, and of very publicly rubbing her feet. All real no-nos in the eyes of any self-respecting Roman. Octavian cannot believe his luck with this madness. And then, in May of that year, Mark decides to officially divorce Octavia and orders her to pack her bags and leave the house. No one in Rome is taking this lying down. But the last straw comes when Octavian gets his hands on Mark Antony's will, which he apparently wrestles out of the protective hands of the Vestal Virgins. When he starts to read it out loud to the Senate, everyone is pretty uncomfortable. This is not how things are done. But they forget all about that when Octavian starts dropping bombs, either real or invented. The first one is that he says he'll gift his lands and wealth to his children with Cleo. And then he says that he wants to be buried not in Rome, but in Alexandria. Sent away to Cleopatra in Egypt. Um, excuse me? See, says Octavian. He's not even really Roman anymore. And that means he's an enemy. It's all he needs that October to proclaim war with Antony and Cleopatra. Except he doesn't declare war on Mark at all, just on Cleo, on Egypt. That's why he had to make her into the lascivious, lusty harpy in the eyes of every Roman. He knows the people wouldn't have been down to start another civil war with a Roman man. But a war against a foreign queen who wants to conquer them all? Let me just go get my sword. Usually, there are several steps between declarations of violence against a client state and actual fighting. Senate approval, a chance for the other side to state their case. But there is none of that here. There aren't even really any official charges. Just some swiftly mumbled, She's being mean and, and bad, and, and she's a lady, so bye, are all that seem to be required. Cleopatra's got to be, not surprised, but to paraphrase her thinking, Damn, what did I do? She hasn't done anything openly hostile to Rome. And yet here they are, and this time there's no escaping them. As Stacy Schiff says in her excellent biography, Cleopatra, about her place in the situation, Antony could not win a war without her. Octavian could not wage one. But this isn't just a battle between two Roman leaders. It's one for every Eastern monarch who's sick and tired of bowing down to Rome's bloodthirsty desires. And so it isn't long before they recruit several Eastern kings to throw in. Mark Antony is going to lead the troops, obviously, but not on his own. He appoints Cleopatra his co-general. Put on your armor, we're going to war. Octavian's savvy general, the strapping Agrippa, sails his troops along the coast of Greece to surprise them. Eventually, after some toing and froing, he corners Antony and Cleo in the port town of Actium. They have enough troops and a good enough position in the harbor that Octavian's troops can't sail in without losing a lot of their men. But the same goes for Mark Antony and Cleo. They can't sail out, and they can't escape overland, as they'd have to leave everything behind to do it. Agrippa's cut off their supply lines. They're trapped. There they languish for months on end, as Agrippa waits with weapons fully loaded for them to try and sail out. Before long, things in Mark and Cleo's camp start to fester. With ranks filled with Thracians, Medeans, and Macedonians, Cleopatra is a real asset. She can speak to them all in their native languages. And though they're used to women in power, they're not all that comfortable with one holding court in the world of war. The Romans who have joined Mark's side are horrified to have a woman giving them orders. They start telling Mark that he should send her away, or maybe just kill her. But he refuses to do that. Disease spreads through camp and bitterness along with it. Mark's allies and client kings start to defect. Tensions are running very high. What should she do? Take the hint and step out of the spotlight? Or stick it out and take a very public stand? Not one to be pushed aside, she chooses the latter. Maybe it's a mistake, and maybe not. But Octavian declared war on her, remember. She is fighting for her country, her family, and possibly her life as well. And she can't afford to be seen as a wilting flower. But she also can't afford for these men to see her as bossy or domineering, telling them how to go about their business. 
In other words, she's stuck squarely in a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation that many modern-day boss ladies will know all too well. Starving, mosquito-infested, and suffering from desperately low morale, they know it's time to make a decision. She and Mark have to decide, retreat by land or force a sea battle. Soon enough, they're making a break for it. Under cover of darkness on the eve of September 1st, Cleo and her people load her ship, the Alexandra, with all of their treasure. In the morning, Antony and Cleo's 240 ships face off against Octavian's 400. Squadrons of 60 ships each head out in front, with Mark Antony captaining one of them, while Cleo's squadron follows behind. Can we just stop and enjoy the fact that Cleopatra is commanding 60 ships like a goddess of war? Can we picture her with a sword and dripping in gold? Okay, great, now that we've got a visual. At midday, it begins. Ships crash together, a fury of arrows rain down, wood cracks and steel bends in one of the most epic naval battles in history, the Battle of Actium. And then things start going south, the center line starts to break, and suddenly, Cleo's squadron crashes through the break and sails swiftly away into the sunset. Boy, bye. Then Mark Antony abandons his warship for a smaller galley and follows after her, leaving the battle behind. Opinions have forever been divided on what's happened here. Was this their plan all along? A worst-case scenario gambit to save their treasury? Does Cleopatra lose heart when she sees the tide turning and decide to make a run for it? I can imagine her standing on the deck of her ship, watching the navy she paid for burning, and wanting more than anything else to just go home. But I also struggle to imagine this fierce, calculating, powerful woman tucking tail and running with two whole armies watching. No matter the reason, the result is disastrous. As the days go on, the remaining fleet is surrounded. Those who don't die defect to Octavian. The battle is lost, but is the war? As they fight to get away, Mark Antony is clearly disturbed and deflated. He's done the unthinkable by Roman standards. He's left his men behind to die. It's a betrayal from which he isn't going to recover. A broken man, he broods around in Alexandria for a time. Cleo tries to get him to pull up his bootstraps and then sends him off to North Africa to recruit some allies, where he mostly just mopes around with his friends. Meanwhile, she wastes no time trying to recruit some new friends to her badly depleted numbers. She gets busy executing anyone who speaks out against her, confiscating their money to fill her war chest, and pilfers some from temples as well. Brutal? Yes. But you have to admire that Cleopatra has a mind that never stops working. She's always coming up with plans on plans on plans for how to protect the things she values. Her life, her family, her country. To save those things, she will do whatever it takes. But it turns out that money can't always buy you friends, and she has trouble recruiting Eastern allies this time around. So this queen of the pivot comes up with another idea. Maybe she can transport her fleet and main fan base over land, then across the Red Sea to somewhere like India, setting up operations there. Her ships could be carried in pieces over the sands. I mean, Hatshepsut did it all those years ago. They make it pretty far, all the way to the far side of the Isthmus, where they meet with the Nabataeans. Not a fan of Cleopatra, they destroy her fleet as they reach the shore. Meanwhile, the studly king of Emo is still moping. After attempted suicide, Mark Antony is brought back to Alexandria, where he builds himself a hut at the foot of the pharos, where he can pout luxuriously and generally be a sack of useless. But Cleopatra isn't about to admit defeat, even if things are starting to look dark. So she throws some parties, partially to get Mark's spirits up, and also to usher their oldest sons, 16-year-old Caesarian and 15-year-old Antilus, Mark's son with our friend Fulvia, into adulthood. They both enlist in the Egyptian army as a morale booster. She does everything she can to get the country feeling patriotic and ready to resist Octavian's advances, because she knows they're gonna come. On the flip side, Plutarch tells us, she and Mark also start a second club together. It's called the Companions to the Death. Cleopatra's goal is to develop a poison that couples can use to perish together, and that won't be too painful. Cleopatra was getting together collections of all sorts of deadly poisons, Plutarch writes, and she tested the painless working of each of them by giving them to prisoners under sentence of death. 
but when she saw that the speedy poisons enhanced the sharpness of death by the pain they caused, while the milder poisons were not quick, she made trial of venomous animals, watching with her own eyes as they were set upon another. She did this daily. Try them almost all. Well, that's pretty bleak, but you have to hand it to Cleo. In the midst of what must seem like insurmountable odds, deep disappointments, and a growing sense of dread, she never stops scheming. Finally, with Octavian's forces growing larger and larger, few friends and their options dwindling, Cleopatra and Mark both write letters to Octavian. Mark promises to kill himself if he'll just spare Cleopatra. She vows that she'll step down as queen if he will just leave her family alone. Octavian ignores Mark but replies to Cleo, saying he'll be happy to oblige if she'll just kill her lover. But for all her sibling throat slashing and rash executions of rivals, when it comes to her ally, her lover, and the father of her children, she's not willing to do that. Instead, she tries to bolster his spirits while also figuring out how they're going to get out of this. She doesn't need saving. If anyone's going to be their knight in shining armor, it's going to be her. She sends her oldest son Caesarian away, talks her other children into safe places with their trusted groups of advisors, and starts building herself a mausoleum. She fills it to the brim with jewels, gold, art, precious spices. In other words, the bulk of her personal riches. She also stocks it with a heaping pile of wood. If Octavian comes too close, she'll set it all on fire, and she tells him so. And he's very lusty when it comes to getting his hands all over her luscious wealth. At last, Octavian and his forces make their way to Egypt. How this part actually goes down is a big bundle of confusion. When Octavian sails to the city, it seems that Mark Antony awakens from his woe-was-me stupor and actually goes out to fight him off. At least until his troops see the writing on the wall and start defecting to Octavian. This, too, of course is Cleo's fault. One historian has him saying, Cleopatra has betrayed me to the enemies I made for her sake. Does she betray him to appease Octavian, hoping for clemency? We don't know. But what must it be like for Cleopatra to see her enemy march his troops into her city, knowing that she's all out of cards to play? And what of her children, who Octavian is sure to want to get rid of? Whatever the reason, she sees what's happening, and she and her attendants rush to the mausoleum and seal themselves inside, leaving Mark behind them. She knows this is a fight neither of them is going to win. One ancient source has Cleopatra sending him a note falsely claiming she's dead, hoping to inspire him to commit suicide. This, remember, is seen as a far better alternative to letting your enemy take you. In the ancient world, when you find yourself defeated, it's the courageous and noble way to go. Maybe she sees it as a mercy to him. Regardless, when Mark hears she's dead, he feels he has nothing else to live for. He grabs his sword and stabs himself through the heart, or he tries to. Instead, he misses and proceeds to bleed out slowly in what must be painful agony. Then he finds out that Cleo's still alive somehow, and he either commands his servants to bring him to her, or she gets hers to go and retrieve him. The scene that unfolds is heartbreaking. He's hoisted by rope in through the mausoleum's one window. He reaches for her, and she reaches down for him. They embrace, she kisses his brow, and there he dies in her arms. Is this the ancient world's greatest love story? Is their passion what brought about their end? Perhaps in this moment, it doesn't matter. Cleopatra reportedly smears his blood on her face, tears at her clothes, beats at her breast in an Egyptian show of lamentation. In this moment, she's lost the man who has stood by her side, for better or worse, for something like a decade. They lose so much of what they built, including each other. Octavian tries to coax her out of the mausoleum. She says she'll set it on fire without certain guarantees. One of his followers uses a ladder to get in through her window, and Octavian is quick to put her under house arrest. He allows her to bury Mark Antony's body. Otherwise, her ever-present guards spend their time making sure she doesn't commit suicide. That won't do when Octavian wants to march her through the streets of Rome in chains. She requests an audience with Octavian. During it, one writer has her looking worse for wear and in terrible disarray, while another has her dressed to impress. Ever the savvy politician, even cornered, she uses what she has to hand. 
She whips out all the love letters Julius Caesar once wrote her. I mean, look how much he loved me, she might have told him. And I bore his son. That makes you and I practically related. You wouldn't kill your sort of stepmom, would you? When that doesn't work, she either tries to seduce him. She totally wants to bang me. Um, no. Or throws herself at his feet and begs for mercy. Also no. One account has her clawing at his face in rage, which is better. We have no way of knowing how this brilliant, brave, ever-adaptable woman may try to save herself and her children, and we have no right to judge her. But the result is the same. Octavian is having none of it. He's going to march her through Rome as part of his triumph, like Julius Caesar once did with her sister. Her children will probably die. Her dynasty will be lost forever. Imagine the despair that must be echoing through her. Octavian thinks he's finally bested Cleopatra. But she is not easily bested, and she isn't going to be anyone's slave. So she engineers one last brilliant plan. She asks Octavian for permission to give her final goodbyes to Mark at his gravesite, which is granted. Then, when she returns to her mausoleum with her two favorite ladies, she orders a bath be prepared and enjoys one last meal. A basket of figs arrives, which is fully inspected. Then Cleo asks for a sealed letter to be taken to Octavian. Nothing major, just a little question. She closes the doors, gets herself dressed in her fanciest robes, and has her ladies tie on her favorite diadem. Even in death, she's going to meet her fate as a queen. When Octavian opens the letter, in which Cleo asks to be buried with Mark, he bursts into her chamber, only to find her dead already on her golden couch. Her two most loyal ladies are there beside her, and one of them, Charmion, close to death. When one of his soldiers yells something like, What deed is this? She offers these proud final words for her mistress. It is indeed most fine and befitting the descendant of so many kings. If you know anything about Cleopatra, you'll have heard that she kills herself by letting an asp, a poisonous snake, bite her breast. You'll see this image echoed in art throughout the centuries, and it does make for a good bit of drama. But it seems pretty unlikely. A snake bite wouldn't have guaranteed a swift or certain death in the time she had available, and she would have known that. That fig basket probably couldn't have hidden an asp anyway. It's more likely that she swallows poison, or puts on some lethal ointment. She was, after all, well-versed in the art of poison. Octavian is said to have been grudgingly impressed by her suicide. Even those who hate her have to admit that it's a distinguished and honorable way to go. In an ode written not long after her death, Horace expresses his own admiration. The queen, in search of a more noble death, did not, womanish, shrink from the sword, nor did she retreat in her swift fleet to hidden shores. She dared, too, to look with a calm face upon her fallen palace, and to handle deadly snakes, so her body might drink their black venom. More defiant in a deliberate death, begrudging the cruel Liburnian ships to head her, a queen no longer, but never humbled. At age 39, Cleopatra dies the last pharaoh of Egypt. But at least in these final moments, she gets to outwit her captor and go out on her terms, in her style. She is buried alongside Mark Antony in Alexandria. No one has ever found their tomb. Ancient Egypt as we know it is no longer, absorbed into the Roman Empire, never again to be what it was. Sadly, her son Caesarion is sought out and killed not long after. His lineage is too big a threat for Octavian to allow. Her other kids, by contrast, are sent in another direction entirely. They are adopted and raised by none other than Octavia, Mark Antony's long-suffering wife. These Egyptian royal children are brought up in a good Roman household, surrounded, we can only hope, with some semblance of love. Later, her daughter, Cleopatra Selene, will be married off to a king, who was also raised in Rome by strangers, Juba II of Mauritania. Together, they will make a court that's full of art and sophistication. There's even a library. And you know Cleo VII would have approved of that. Their son, Ptolemy of Mauritania, will take the throne after his father leaves it. 
More than a decade into his reign, he's invited to Rome by an emperor who we'll get to know a lot better in future episodes, a guy named Caligula. When Ptolemy makes the mistake of sweeping into some gladiatorial games wearing a purple cloak, Caligula has him murdered. And thus, Cleopatra's story finally draws to its end. Or does it? Next time, in a special epilogue to our three-part series on Cleopatra Philopater, we'll discuss how her image has grown and changed over time. What do we make of this queen's enduring and unshakable legacy? Why does she live on and on in our imaginations, looming so glittering and large? We'll find out. Until next time. For listening. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron. You can also make a one-time donation, tell your friends about the show, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, or buy some lady-centric art at my Explores Etsy shop. It's over there you'll find some fetching art prints and greeting cards featuring our girl Cleopatra, as well as posters featuring a map and timeline of ancient Egypt. For a transcript of this episode, a list of my research sources, images, credits, and more, check out the show notes over at my website. A special shout-out to author Stacey Schiff, whose illuminating and truly immersive biography of Cleopatra really helped me tell her story, and which I recommend if you want to learn more about her life. The music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of Michael Levy, Keith Sizza, and Derek and Brandon Fleischer. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Much love to Mr. Explores for my theme music, logo, and for his help producing this episode. Thanks, too, to the following legends for their vocal stylings. Veronica Washington Ramos, our sultry Cleopatra. John Armstrong, who played Appian. Sean from Stories of Your and Yours podcast, who voiced Plutarch. Andrew Yergold, who lived it up as Mark Antony. Stephen Reichel as our uptight Octavian. And Paul Gablonski, who gave voice to Pliny. Yo, Cleo, Mark again. Uh, you got my text? It says here red, but I ain't hear from you. You must, like, already be on your way. All right, I'll wait.